Thank you, Shelley. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been going through a sermon series entitled God's Deliverance from Depression. We've been specifically looking at certain characters in the Bible like Moses and Elijah who were so depressed that they actually asked God to take their lives. They were so depressed they were willing and ready to die. You may remember that when we began this sermon series, we started by looking at uh, Numbers chapter 11, the story of Moses and how he was out in the wilderness leading the people of Israel and the constant complaining and crying of the riffraff of Israel wore him out. And he said, God, would you just please take my life? I'm tired of leading these people. Moses felt that he was all alone. You may remember, though, that what happened was God, instead of killing Moses, he actually took the spirit that he had given to Moses, and he shared that spirit among 70 other elders so that Moses would not have to lead alone, that Moses would know that he is never alone. And as a part of the application of that sermon, we talked about the need for all of us to to be in Christ-centered, grace-filled community. In fact, Moses at the end of Numbers 11 says, oh, that the Spirit of God would be on everyone. And that's happened since Pentecost. Ever since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is now within each one of us. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that our faith is a work of the Holy Spirit, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And we are now all members of the body of Christ together. And the hand can't say to the head, I don't need you. We all need each other. And so we were encouraging everyone to be a part of some type of Christ-centered, grace-filled community. Specifically, if you're not a part of a Sunday school class, we've got numerous Sunday school classes for you to join uh, this January. And we've got a little brochure in the Great Hall you can pick up at that great desk there. And I would love for you to join that. Or if you'd like to be a part of some of our uh, small groups during the week, if you're a man, we've got men's groups. You can talk to Mary Gossett about that. If you're a woman, we've got women's groups. You can talk to Emily Wood. Or you can simply go to our webpage and find out. But as a part of this sermon series on depression, we've actually begun a a Wednesday night class in the parlor from 6.30 to 7.30 studying Max Lucado's book, Anxious for Nothing. I think we've got the cover of the book there. If you haven't read this book, it's a great book. Max Lucado is an author and a pastor from San Antonio. He grew up in Andrews, Texas. He's a West Texan. Does a great job of really expounding on what the words of Philippians 4 have to say about how we don't have to live in anxiety that we can cast our concerns and worries upon God, and to know that the body of Christ is here for us. Yes, if you remember the story of Elijah that we looked at last week, Elijah, like Moses, felt like he was all alone, and so he he cried out to God. He said, God, go ahead and, and take my life. But God let Elijah know that you are not alone. In fact, there are 7,000 people that had not yet bowed the knee to Baal, that, that Elijah wasn't alone, Moses wasn't alone. We are not alone. We've got the body of Christ to help us in times of need. And of course, if you wrestle with continual depression, we would actually encourage you to go to the uh, Amarillo Family Institute where there are wonderful Christian counselors. In fact, inside your bulletin, you may notice that we've got a marriage seminar coming up with Terry and Sharon Hargrave. They actually started the Amarillo Family Institute. Terry is a child of this church. He's a wonderful counselor, and now he's a professor at Fuller Seminary. And we encourage people to go to the Amarillo Family Institute for counseling, Christian counseling. In fact, our own Elizabeth Smith, a member of our church, is a counselor there. It's a great, great ministry. But maybe you need medication. The fact is that sometimes long-term depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. I actually have some relatives who take medication uh, to help with their depression, and it's, it's made a world of difference for them. 
Yes, I'm grateful for the miracle of modern medicine. I'm grateful for Christ-centered community. I'm grateful for Christian counselors that can help us process seasons of depression. But sometimes, sometimes that community is not available. Sometimes we find ourselves alone and unable to reach out to others. What are we to do when we're not able to access that type of community, and yet we find ourselves filled with sorrow, grief, and depression. To see what Jesus did when he was abandoned by his community, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. It may be found on page 1058 of your Red Pew Bible. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, as we turn to this familiar text, this powerful story of Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane, I pray, O Lord, that You might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might see how we can faithfully apply Your Word to our lives today. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. Listen to God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss to is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Looking again at that very last sentence. Then all the disciples left him and fled. How disappointing. Jesus has spent the last three years with these 12 disciples, ministering alongside them, doing remarkable miracles. And and yet in his greatest hour of need, the disciples, well, they flee. They leave him. In fact, you may have noticed that before this happens, before they flee and leave, Jesus actually invites Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, his innermost circle, to join him in prayer. But they can't even stay awake one hour praying with Jesus. How disappointed Jesus must have been for his disciples to abandon him, for Judas to betray him. And yet Jesus isn't surprised. He knew this was going to happen. For if you read all of Matthew 26, specifically if you pick it up with verse 31, you'll see this. It says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All the disciples said, Jesus, I'll never deny you. Others might abandon you, but I won't. But what did we read in verse 56? Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus was abandoned, alone. No one to turn to. That's why Jesus doesn't turn alone only to his disciples in his time of need He does what we should all do. He turned to our Heavenly Father in his deepest hour of need. Listen again to what Jesus prayed in his deepest hour of need. We find it in verse 39. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. What is this cup exactly that Jesus is talking about, that he's asking his heavenly father to pass or to be taken from him? Well, we know from the words of Jesus and from the prophet Isaiah that the cup Jesus is speaking about is this cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath. For in Isaiah 51 verse 17 we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Jesus knows that he has come to this earth to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's called to 
to fulfill the words of Isaiah 53 that Shelley read so beautifully just a moment ago, that he's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. In fact, if you read Luke's account of the crucifixion and this story, in Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12, when he says this, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment." Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Even though he had no sin, he became sin for us and dying on a cross is that perfect atoning sacrifice. Jesus knows that's why he's come. He knows this cup of wrath is coming and so he cries out to his father. But notice again the principal emotion that Jesus is feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not fear, it's sorrow. For Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, if I was Jesus, I would probably be afraid because, I, well, we knew how crucifixion went. Your arms were pierced and your, your feet as well. You would hang on a cross of asphyxiation where basically you, you, you drowned in your own blood. It was a horrible way to die, and the Romans were quite good at doing it. Jesus knew that a flogging was coming, crucifixion was coming, and we all know we're going to die someday, but man, I do not want to die by crucifixion. And yet Jesus isn't afraid. He's sad. Why is Jesus sad rather than afraid? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What is it that's driving this sorrow of Jesus? Is it the fact that he knows that he's about to be betrayed by one of his good friends, Judas? Or the fact that Peter, his closest disciple, his lead disciple, is about to deny knowing him three different times? Or the fact that he's going to be abandoned and, and left by all of his disciples? Is that what's driving Jesus' sorrow in this great hour of need? I don't think so. Because for the last three years, the disciples have been disappointing Jesus, have they not? They've been walking with Jesus and getting it wrong, it seems like, almost every possible way. They don't quite seem to get it, at least not yet. No, Jesus didn't have a lot of confidence and faith in his disciples to get it right. He wasn't surprised when they abandoned him. Now, I believe what's probably driving Jesus' sorrow is the fact that he knows that he's going to have to die a sinner's death and therefore be abandoned by God. Listen to the words of Jesus as they're recorded in, in Matthew 27, verse 46. As Jesus is being crucified, he says this, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is with his final breaths on the cross, is actually praying the words of Psalm 22 in Hebrew, crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, forsaken is not an English word we use a lot today in our contemporary English. I actually like the way Eugene Peterson translates that verse and the message. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus, dying on a cross for the sins of the world, must experience a sinner's death. He must experience true abandonment from God because we know from Psalm 5, verse 4, that evil cannot dwell with God. We read in Psalm 5, verse 4, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
as one who is taking on the sins of the world, Jesus is going to have to experience death in all its fullness on our behalf. As the Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he, he writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is dying a a sinner's death, experiencing death in its fullness, and, and experiencing the abandonment of our Heavenly Father so that we won't have to. So that when we die, we can experience God's loving presence, knowing that our sins that separate us from God have already been atoned for by Jesus Christ, that we were covered by His blood and His righteousness so that we can now have a a right relationship with God. Yes, Jesus is sorrowful because He doesn't want to experience the abandonment, feeling abandoned by God. Have you ever experienced the sorrow or the sadness or the grief of abandonment, feeling like you're all alone? I remember when I was 22 years old, I was uh, working for Price Waterhouse, and we were doing our training in Tampa Bay, Florida. And as well, while we were in Tampa Bay, Florida, uh, I spent three months there learning how to be a consultant. And I had a girlfriend from college. We were trying to uh, keep the relationship going long distance. She was in California, and I was in Florida, which made it a challenge nonetheless to say with all the time zones. But uh, I remember right before Thanksgiving, uh, she communicated to me by phone that she wanted to end the relationship. And I was like, oh man, I did not see that coming. I remember feeling so alone, so abandoned. I mean, I had some coworkers, but we were only together for three months. These guys lived in New York, in California, in Chicago, all over the country. We really weren't that close. I felt so, so alone. I didn't have a church community because I was only there for three months. What are we to do when our body of Christ, the church, our friends, our family members can't be there for us, in that moment, what are we to do when we feel depressed and sorrowful because we feel abandoned? What should we do? I think we should do what Jesus did. He prayed. He prayed. Let's look again at that prayer that he prayed in that garden of Gethsemane, knowing that his disciples were abandoning him He turned to his heavenly father and he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of wrath, this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice that Jesus in his humanity doesn't want to experience the pain of the crucifixion. He doesn't want to experience the sorrow and the abandonment of God. And so he pours out his heart to God. In fact, as we talked about, 65 of the 150 psalms in the Psalter are psalms of lament, where David and other psalms writers pour out their hearts to God. They, they, care, they bring God with their cares and their concerns, knowing that God welcomes those cares and concerns, that God is willing to carry those cares and concerns so we don't have to feel alone. But notice that as Jesus prays, there's a progression to this prayer. In verse 38 we read, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes and sees his disciples are sleeping. He's like, man, can't you guys sleep, stay watch with me one hour? 
And then in verse 41, it says, watch and pray that you may not be enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice that Jesus, as he's praying for an hour, when was the last time you prayed for an hour? Jesus is praying for an hour, pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father, asking that this cup may be taken away from him, and yet ultimately he, he's willing to submit to the will of our heavenly Father. He's willing to submit because no, he knows God's will is the best thing for us, for all of humanity. You know, God uses prayer to change us. As we pour out our hearts to God, God gives us eyes to see how he is still very much at work in our lives. And we just need to cast our cares and concerns to him to ask that his will might be done. And then we will find peace. I love what Richard Foster says in his Christian classic celebration of discipline about prayer. He says, to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to, to transform us. In prayer, real prayer... We begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. As we spend time in communion with God, praying, talking to God for an extended period, not just for a few seconds, but, but even think about what Jesus did. He prayed for an hour, and he prayed repeatedly, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And as we pour our hearts out to God, we begin to see how God is, is even at work in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our pain, and we trust God to take care of us. We trust that his will will be the best thing for us. We learn through prayer to submit, and in submission, we find peace. You know, submission is actually a spiritual practice, an ancient Christian practice. We see this in Jesus. He was willing to submit to his Father's will to die on a cross, uh, Richard Foster says this about submission. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden. Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. You know, it's a burden to insist on our own way. Submission is the freedom to not insist on our own way, but rather to, to ask God's will to be done. I remember uh, as I was grieving the end of this college relationship that I thought for sure was supposed to end in marriage. I was so disappointed, so you know, blindsided by it, whatever. I was just so upset. I remember praying out to God, and my roommate, he was actually Buddhist. Thanks be to God, he sent me an email uh, two weeks ago. He's actually become a Christian, if you believe that, which is awesome. I gave him a Bible at the end of our time together, and he still has that Bible. He sent me a little picture of that Bible and the note that I wrote. But I was thinking to myself, here's this Buddhist, and here I'm going through this break, and I'm just a ball of tears. I mean, what kind of faith do I have, right? But he noticed that I was praying. Every morning I would pray and every day I would read his word. And that prayer for me was basically the same. Lord, I don't want this, but not my will, but yours be done. And thanks be to God, a year later I met my beautiful wife, Sarah Jean Browning. Hallelujah, amen. God's will is good, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. My friends, we will find peace in submission. And prayer helps us get there. By asking in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our depression, that God's will might be done. Just as Jesus prayed for God's will to be done, he ultimately found peace. Yes, peace is found in submission. As we submit our lives to the will of God, knowing 
that we have a God who loves us and his will is the best thing for us. Do you know just how much God loves you? God loves us not this much, but this much. God and his great love for us doesn't abandon us in our sin. He sends his son to this earth to die on a cross for all of our sins. And there is no greater love than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends, as Jesus says in John chapter 15. That the great, eternal, everlasting love of God is demonstrated at the cross of Christ and at the empty tomb. For on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. And that resurrected Jesus told his disciples that he will be with us always to the very end of the age. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Paul explains in his letters to the Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, there are times in this life when we'll feel alone just as I felt alone in Tampa Bay, Florida, when our community may not be able to minister to us right there in that moment, but the good news is we're not alone. Nothing can take us away from the eternal, everlasting, unconditional love of our Heavenly Father who showed his great love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? So in our grief, in our sorrow, in our depression, when we feel abandoned, when we feel alone, let's do what Jesus did. Let's pray. In our conversations with God, let us be reminded that we are not alone. And that as we pray, let us be willing to submit to his will knowing that his will is the best thing for us. And as his will, as we submit to his will, we will find peace, joy, and freedom. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're a God who doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, you actually became one of us. And you experienced the grief and the sorrow of a sinner's death so that we won't have to Yes, we know that when we die, we will not be alone. You'll be with us. That not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That you are the God who promises that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so, Lord, in this life, though, we we may have times when we feel alone, when we're not able to reach out to friends or family members like we would want to, or maybe people aren't able to respond like we hope they would, but we know we can turn to you in prayer. We can cast our cares and our burdens upon you and we can seek your will knowing that your will is the best thing for us. For it's in your will we find just how much you love us. We pray, O Lord, that we might submit that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ and all God's people said, Amen.